I'm excited to jump into the Word of God with you this morning. I have been waiting to do this all week, even though it was a whirlwind for us uh, being at the conference, the Puritan Conference, but um, as, uh, as I think about it, it was a great inspiration. Those things always are. So I'm excited to look at Ecclesiastes with you this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to chapter 7. While you're turning, I want to say that we are continuing to press on in this wonderful book. We become more and more surprised as we do from one chapter to the next just how evangelistic it is. And I've said this before and will no doubt have cause to say it again because it's not only true, but because it's a book that we can certainly uh, recognize as evangelistic and we don't therefore want to neglect it. It's helpful to us. Say it shows us just how to reason with unbelieving hearts, with an irrefutable logic, using real-life experiences to show people the fleeting and, of course, now also unsearchable nature of life itself, apart from the author of life and apart from his special revelation that we call the Bible. So we want to use it. We must. We mustn't neglect it. So we're in chapter 7. We're looking at verses 13 to 18, as, uh, and as you might imagine, we come across yet another effective evangelistic strategy. Uh, we could define it a few different ways, but you've come to know it, I think, as making the faith attractive. I know you've heard that before. It's a strategy. Paul talks about it in Titus 2, in fact, among other places, where he explains there that Christian men and women both young and old, ought to live the faith in such a way, in such concrete, tangible, unmistakable ways, in their own stations in life, some as wives, and some as husbands, and some as children, and even slaves, that their behavior before the world reveals just how logically irrefutable the Word of God is. I didn't say that we can stop the world from refuting the Word of God, rejecting it, considering it archaic and backward, too restricting and whatever else. No, we, we cannot prevent them from saying those things. They always will continue to do that. But I'm saying that their refutations against godly living that the Word of God produces by His Spirit are empty. They're not logical, they're not legitimate, rather they're faulty, and in the case of Titus 2, they're ridiculous. For example, will anyone in his right or her right mind criticize men for being temperate, dignified, self-controlled, persevering in love? Women for being reverent and respectful, not gossips, not using alcohol as an escape? Or criticizing older women for mentoring younger, younger women and how to, how to be godly wives and mothers? How could anyone advocate wives hating their husbands or their children or, uh, as being a sensible thing? How could one disdain being good examples to others or dignified or maintaining a reputation that is above reproach? Oh, it's all so silly when you think about it. Very silly. Now, they're, they're, they're not only ways to make the faith attractive or to be an influence for Christ in the lives of your unbelieving audience, um, or not one way, I should say. There are many. And this morning, I want to show you how you can have a very loud 
and convincing voice when you understand how to minister to unbelievers through adversity, through adversity. Now, by adversity, I mean very simply bad situations, trials, tragedies, unfortunate outcomes, dark times in life, all of these things that everyone in the world is susceptible to. And you should know, if you don't already, that the world calls common responses to these situations, that is, despair, depression, resorting to substance abuse, or divorce, sinking into immorality, becoming aloof, refusing to face reality and such, as natural. They mistake what is common for being natural. But the two are not synonyms. Sin is common. More precisely, it's universal. But it's not natural, right? Death is common, universal, in fact, inescapable. But God never intended that to be part of life. It's not natural. That being said, the way you handle adversity in the Christian life as a Christian one who's born from above the sun, will necessarily handle it differently. At least you should. For example, James says in chapter 1 of his epistle, verses 2 to 4, that we should rejoice in various trials, not for the pain of the trial itself or for the negative context that it presents, but because it tests our faith, which produces endurance. And when we endure fully, we lack in nothing. He speaks not just of temporal benefits of adversity. He then goes on to mention a couple of breaths later, eternal rewards as well. Here, James, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 12. Do you handle adversity that way? Do you receive it well in the same way that you would Receive God's discipline in your life, asks the writer to the Hebrews. Can you say to God, along with the psalmist of Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted so that I may learn your statutes? You see, when you handle a typical and universal aspect of life, such as adversity, in an atypical fashion, people stand up and take notice. More specifically, if the adversity that sends everyone going in the same bad direction, reaping even worse consequences, sends you in a completely opposite and good direction, reaping happiness and contentment, a deep and abiding joy and a strong and confident walk of life, would not the sane and sensible among the world who see you want to know your secret? I think they would, especially if they work with you or they know you intimately. You see them at the gym all the time. You have have their, their attention at social events. Would you not stick out as a sore thumb? Wouldn't your worldview be appealing to them, even if it were for selfish reasons on their part? Think that through. The sage answers, of course, absolutely to all of those. And in verses 13 to 18, he argues this. This is what he argues. When you consider adversity in your life as the work of God, 
you're sure to display a confident reliance on God, a correct view of reality, and godly fear that will make the faith attractive to the world. Let's see how he develops this for us. He opens in verse 13 with a command. Make no mistake. Consider adversity in your life as the work of God. Now that's my summary. The way he puts it is, consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. Very interesting. What a provocative statement that is. It it truly vexes not just the worldly hearer, but sadly many Christians out there who are doctrinally uninformed. Many churchgoers give little, if any, proper consideration to this particular work of God that we're identifying as adversity. Yes, it is a work of God. And that lack of consideration, as I'll prove to you in just a few short moments, not only impoverishes the Christian walk, but makes them, quite, quite frankly, bad testimonies to Christ before the world. So what's to consider? Well, that God has decreed adversity in the lives of his people. Actually, in the lives of people. Let's just start generally. The word bent in our verse, verse 13, is a figure for adversity. Therefore, adversity is very much a work of God. That's what he says. Consider the work of God, and then he introduces this bent direction in a straight path. He works adversity in people's lives. The first century, or I'm sorry, the uh, the 17th century Scottish theologian and Puritan, Thomas Boston, we heard a lot about the Puritans this week, And it was great. So I'll mention one. He wrote an entire book on Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. Can you imagine? Yes, an entire book. It's called The Crook in the Lot, The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God in the Afflictions of Men Displayed. It's a great title. Uh, One's lot, Boston explains, is his life that God sovereignly designs and shapes by his many providences. And the crook, the crook refers simply to bad situations, troubles that afflict and unsettle the soul. And everyone has a lot that's full of them. And God is the one who puts them there. Everyone has God-ordained crooks in their God-designed lots both the godly and the ungodly, but only the godly have the ability in Christ to see these crooks as coming from the hand of a merciful God and to receive them as unmistakable expressions of his mercy. Paul does that in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, where he talks about the fact that he doesn't lose heart because he receives this ministry from the mercy of God, the ministry, of course, fraught, with all kinds of adversity, you go on to read verses 5 to 7, and then you skip over to chapter 11 in the early part of that chapter, reading a litany of things that Paul had to endure for the ministry. All adversity, all from the hand of God. And because of that, he does not lose heart. Wonderful. It's powerful. This is why Christians can rejoice in the midst of them to use them to improve their spiritual lives by examining their hearts. You know, trials have a way of drawing sins that we didn't know were there to to our attention. And also using these, these adverse times in our lives as platforms 
for which, from which to minister to others as speaking and living biblical truth in the midst of adversity gives us a loud voice, more believable and more convincing, actually. We tell counselees in our counseling this very hopeful promise. It's a promise. If they mean business, then it'll happen. And that is that those who come for counseling who are struggling through debilitating trial, our promise to them is that after they learn from God's word with the help of the Holy Spirit to champion God's righteousness in the very area of their weakness, they will be in a great position to go on to help others who are going through the very same adversity that they were once in. And they have a lot to tell them. Their biblical counsel to them will be much more powerfully communicated than if we counselors were to communicate that same counsel. Why is that? Because they are living proof that the word of God works. That's why. I can tell you how to live with adversity, and I'm going to in just a few moments. And Johnny Erickson Tada can tell you the exact same thing that I'm going to give you, and I guarantee you will hear her much better than you'll hear me. Why? Because she's living proof that biblical principles that we're giving you work. So you have a loud voice. A loud voice. What a great advantage, then, one has whose heart has been redeemed, who's born from above the sun, and has a proper understanding of God's sovereignty, dispense, uh, or sovereign dispensing of his trials in our lives. Adversity, you know, is inevitable, right? It's inevitable. No one can straighten what God has bent, the sage says. That's a foregone conclusion. But you handle them. And the way you handle them makes all the difference, both in, both in your sanctification and in your evangelism to your unbelieving observers. All right, you say, what's next? Well, number two, a serious and sincere consideration of the fact that God works adversity in your life will display a wholehearted and confident reliance on God. That's what it'll display. Now, let me say that in other words. The sage tells us clearly that the God who brings us prosperity so that we can rejoice is the very same God who brings us adversity so that we can learn to trust him more. And he introduces this with an invite to rejoice in the day of prosperity. Notice, on the day of prosperity, be happy. But on the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Now, anyone would hardly need to be reminded to rejoice over prosperous times in life. It's just a natural uh, outworking of, of our situation, which is why the sage is not so much reminding us of that as he is preparing us for the next truth, that we should receive prosperity uh, the, or rather, we should receive adversity, sorry, the same way as we receive prosperity, with rejoicing. That's really the implication. How's that? Well, with rejoicing. The sage doesn't say to rejoice over adversity. He says to consider that God also sends it. But that's the rationale, I believe, for why we would have to receive it the same way, 
thankfully. In fact, Job expressed the same sentiments nearly a millennium before this sage. He rebukes his wife, you remember, who was advising him to just curse God and die in the midst of his adversity. He says to his wife, chapter 1, verse 19, you are speaking as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we accept good from God but not accept adversity? What's the implication of that verse? Both come from him. The other one is that we ought to receive, receive them and welcome them and accept them the same. Rejoice in times of prosperity and in times of adversity, since God is the one that brings both your way and for your good. Huh. I can tell you for sure that many Christians in America are, are not on the same page as the sage. And when I say, when I when I, I said that I consider God's work of adversity in your life will reveal a confident reliance on God. I mean it will if you're obedient to the sage's teaching. I purposely and deliberately worded it this way. You see, many are not obedient to the word with regard to how to handle adversity. And and those that I've talked to over the years in my pastorate really bristle at it when, when I brought it up. They were not only shocked and horrified, but personally offended. How dare you suggest a thing, they would say, that God would ordain catastrophe and adversity in people's lives, and especially the lives of Christians. God doesn't want us to suffer, they would protest. And then go on to argue, God would not decree harm to come to the innocent, he wants to help us and deliver us from adversity, and that's why we pray to him. Is that right? Hmm. Well, Paul asked God three times to take away his adversity in Second Corinthians 12, and God said no. Oh, and by the way, God was the one who gave him the adversity. Oh, and by the way, God gave it to him to keep him humble. Oh, and by the way, Paul, Paul's response, once he considered it, once he considered the work of God's adversity in his life, was to rejoice over it. The fact is, the Bible is filled with examples of God bringing adversity into the lives of his saints. Job, Moses, Joseph, David, Jeremiah, Daniel, the entire nation of Israel at times. There's no shortage of examples. Besides, this argument that God doesn't want, to, to, doesn't want adversity in our lives is, as, is, is unsound just by the presence of adversity in our lives. Right? And it creates a, a great problem, I think, that, that it tries to solve, a greater problem that it tries to solve. If God is powerful enough to deliver you from adversity, why would he then not prevent it from, from you in the first place? I ask that question, and I just get silence on the other end. It's also ridiculous and quite unbiblical. God is 100% sovereign, beloved. He has determined the end from the beginning for his own glory and for the good of his people. And of the several good reasons that God brings his worshipers into trials, the one that the sage zeroes in on for us here is the confident reliance on God that, that they solicit in us. The rest of verse 14 reads, so that a person will not discover anything that will come after him. Mm -hmm. Now, 
there's nothing like adversity to remind us of our, of our finiteness, especially with regard to knowledge. We cannot know the future or what's ahead. A woman says in the midst of severe affliction, none of us saw this coming. But ignorance of future adversities, much like our, our lack of power to prevent them, thrusts us upon the mercies and grace of the very one who brings them. Adversity comes in the seasons and, and degrees that it does, mixed with alleviating prosperity so that we might learn to depend on our great God. And display of, of confident trust in God through commonly shared crises speaks volumes to those unbelievers who are crushed by the weight of them. Oh, yes. Who in, time, who in those times have been depleted of their energy and can speak barely above a whisper. But know this, they, they hear you just fine. And they know the difference between their cries of despair and your cries of joy. Johann Schutz put it well in the third stanza of his well-known well -known hymn, Sing Praise to God Who Reigns Above. You know it. Thus all my toilsome way along, I sing aloud thy praises, that earth may hear the grateful song my voice unwearied raises. Be joyful in the Lord, my heart, both soul and body, hear, bear your part. To God, all praise and glory. Well, number three, a serious and sincere consideration of the fact that God works adversity in your life will display your correct interpretation of reality. I love this one, especially. I've been waiting all week to tell you this one. Without, seri without serious consideration given to the fact that God works in specific ways and without his special revelation, everything about life is, is beyond knowing, frankly. Everything about life is beyond knowing. You don't have God. You don't have his word. You will know nothing about life. You might think you do. You'll know nothing. And the more that the godless knows, the more that he sees that he doesn't know, right? Very common thing. This is why science and medicine are always changing. Is butter good for you? Well, depends where medicine is at the moment. Last year it wasn't. Now, well, you better take some stock out on it. Their solution to one problem creates a host of other problems. Isn't that interesting? And then there are the contingencies and the eventualities of life that we face all the time, not knowing when they'll hit or when we will crash into that 90% or 90 degree turn rather in the road until it's too late. And while all of us face unknowns, the one without divine revelation, without godly wisdom, is left to define reality on his own. And he'll always get it wrong. All the time. There are no shortage of explanation or examples in our own day where people are defining and redefining themselves and getting it horribly and tragically wrong, but we might stick with the sage's example in verses 15 to 17. He provides us with a keen example of the misrepresentation of life and, and really the misinterpretation of life by the godless. And he shows us just how tragic this misinterpretation of life is when one has to face life 
without God's guiding and defining words. So he speaks from the vantage point of the unbeliever at this point in these verses, in verses 15 to 17. He kind of role plays, all right? He's, he's, being, he's, uh, he's, he's being the unbeliever at this point. He says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility, speaking as the unbeliever. Now, how do we know he's role playing as the voice of the godless, because the believer doesn't see life as unknowable. Now he's he, he's he's got the answers right. The sage has proven this to be the case many times over. So, so he puts these words in the mouth of the godless, and I wonder if the tone. I've not read this anywhere. Okay, I, I'll I'll warn you of that. But I, I wonder if the tone of this verse shouldn't be read a bit differently than a simple declaration of a fact more like a frustrating admission of an unbelie- of the unbelievable something like this now i've seen it all in this hard to define life that i live i say that because of what the sage tells us in the rest of the verse uh, that uh, that he uh, that he sees that his character sees it's a scenario very specific that is not hypothetical it's real and we can attest it in our own day, too. What is it? Here it is. There is a righteous person who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked person who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do you see what's going on here? To the natural mind, who lives by and under the sun worldview, this is one of the classic paradoxes in life. Good guy dies prematurely while doing good. Bad guy outlives him by several years while living it up. Well, that just doesn't make sense. So you can see why, after witnessing this, he now says, I've seen it all. Now I've seen it all. Well, whatever the tone, we can be sure that this context in life makes no sense to him because he doesn't have a redeemed mind. He doesn't embrace an above-the-sun worldview. He possesses no divine, godly wisdom, no special revelation. So it's hard for him to make any sense of what he is observing at this very moment. Now, I'm sure you'll agree that most people in the world do find it mysterious enough that people should die prematurely. Wow, they say. He was so young. Had his whole life ahead of him. Why did this have to happen? And why did he have to get so sick? Makes no sense. It's all the more mysterious to them when this young man also happened to be a good guy, right? Again, makes no sense. He helped people. But to top it off, what makes this whole thing past finding out is that the the bad guy, whom everybody couldn't care less about because he, according to them, deserves to die, more than anyone else prematurely, is alive and well and goes on to live many more years, perhaps even to a ripe old age, in his wickedness. And this is truly mysterious, makes no sense to the godless person because he has no insight from God's truth. To say he's frustrated is an understatement. Now those of us who are redeemed, we have a redeemed mind. We have the mind of Christ in the word of God. We're not so shocked by this so-called paradox of life. Now, we might not know the reasons of the premature death of the righteous guy and the reasons behind the long life of the wicked man, but we do know this. 
that the Almighty God had decreed both of these outcomes for his purposes and will satisfy his future will with the repercussions of both, which we don't know. We know that. We're sure of that. That's a truth. And that makes a lot of difference for us. Not being stupefied by these kinds of situations in life is, is, a, is a result of, of the fact that we, we have the mind of Christ. But being stupefied by these kinds of situations as the godless are, that's not the worst of it for them. Oh, no. No, more tragically is that without the godly wisdom of God's special revelation, the natural man who belongs to the realm under the sun cannot correctly interpret this outcome for his own benefit. How is he supposed to interpret this? What's he supposed to take away from it? He doesn't know how he should live in light of it, in other words. That's the bigger question. How do you interpret the world around you and what principles you should take from these various situations and put it into your life? Because that's what people do. They look for all kinds of ways and means to, to improve what they think is a good life. But we can be sure that whatever he takes away from this bewildering circumstance that the sage just brought up and incorporates into his life will be absolutely wrong. It will be. It has to be. It must be. Because it comes from his own thinking, his own mind, his own fallen mind. He can neither interpret correctly what he's just witnessed nor correctly ascertain what lessons from it he should learn and live. He would need God's truth for that. We see him talking to himself now. Now now the sage's character is talking to himself in verses 16 and 17, and this this is what he says. This is the best he can do. Well, let's see. Do not be excessively righteous... And do not be overly wise. Why should, why should you ruin yourself? But then again, do not be excessively wicked and, and don't be foolish. Well, why should you die before your time? And this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. The sage, of course, still role-playing, speaks from the vantage point of this godless person in order to mock his character's misinterpretations of what seemed to him to be random, unexplained, and nonsensible outcomes. And he reasons to himself, well, maybe I, should be ex- I shouldn't be so excessively righteous or even overly wise for fear that I might ruin myself. After all, this righteous man died a premature death. Yet on the other hand, since the greater rule or the general rule seems to be that the wild and crazy wind up dead sooner than later, well, I should probably curb some of the wickedness in me so as not to push my luck. How sad is that? Taking, the, taking from the best of the righteous and the wicked worlds is not the way to live life. Always hedging your bets. Godly wisdom that comes from above the sun never, ever warns of pursuing too much righteousness. Unless, of course, we're talking about self-righteousness or worldly wisdom, which is not true righteousness and godly wisdom at all. In fact, one who's born from above the sun would have the righteousness of Christ, right? Which far exceeds that of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Right? Jesus told everyone, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Likewise, God never advocates wickedness in moderation either. All wickedness is in any amount is a form of sin that leads to death and is the reason for God's wrath coming. Now, in contrast, the implication is the better way, the life that the sage already defined earlier as pleasing God, a gift from God, where God is at the center, where we enjoy life before God. This is the divine wisdom. This is true righteousness that comes from God. And the one who has an above-the-sun worldview, who has godly wisdom from the scriptures at his disposal, can see this to be the case. When anyone turns to the word of God and embraces it, as the sure word of life receives new eyes, or has received new eyes, he, he has eyes to see it, and he now has ears to listen to it, all of which leads to a correct interpretation of reality. And beloved, a presentation of reality can be very appealing to those who, because of being deceived by Satan, have become fed up with their many attempts to try to get their version of life just right. So they might want to talk with you. Are you ready? Number four, finally, a serious and sincere consideration of the fact that God's works, works adversity in your life will display a godly fear. That's verse 18. When we come to the last verse, verse 18, I, I believe that the sage picks up the theme of prosperity and adversity that he opened our text with back in verse 13. So he says, it is good that you grasp the one thing while not letting go of the other. In other words, hold on to both. For one who fears God comes out with both of them. The two things, as I say, that we are to take hold of, that is that we are to welcome into our lives thankfully, are not, of course, self-righteous living and wicked li the wicked lifestyle the versions that we're presented with in, in verses 15 to 17. Obviously not. Those were just illustrations of how the godless, without God's revelation, misinterpret prosperity and adversity. No, he brings us back on point, and he argues that when you consider how God works in our lives, understanding that he uses both prosperity and adversity for his own glorious ends and the good of his people, it will display in your life godly fear that becomes very attractive. Now, we don't reject uh, one for the other, of course, or maybe take some of both and create something altogether different like the sage's character. No, we receive well our lot in life, which comes mixed with a, divine determined, a divinely determined amount of prosperity and adversity, because God is working through both of them for his glory and our good. But only those who fear God, that is, have a proper relationship with him, can accept their lot and see it all, both the good and the bad, as God, God's merciful best for them. Which brings us back then, finally, to the two, two applications that I mentioned at the beginning and that I really want you to get come to, a, to the New Testament's 
word on this, and I assure you it's the same word of the sage. Two applications. One has to do with how we handle the crooks in our lot for our own sanctification. The other application, as we said, and which I believe is more to the point of Ecclesiastes, is how to make the faith attractive for unbelieving onlookers, that we might give them the secret to a life of lasting satisfaction, and that makes sense. You have to get the first before you can get the second. So, as to the first application, how do I handle the crook in our lot well for my own sanctification? I want to say that there are a number of New Testament passages, I believe, we, that come to bear on this. The one that Thomas Boston uses in his book uh, the most is 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 7. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under, the, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The sense here, especially in relation to Ecclesiastes 7.14, is that because the Lord is his wisdom, or in his wisdom rather, has brought us our crooks, obviously for our good, whether it is to teach us something about ourselves, reveal a particular sin in our lives that we need to repent of, build our character, our Christian character, we would do well to humble ourselves under God's corrective or disciplining or character-building hand so that in due time God will bring us forth from the crucible of, of his tough love a much stronger, wiser, and more confident believer. And this think, thinking touches upon the fear of God that we display in the midst of God's crook. This is the reverential fear I'm talking about. It's it causes in us a humility that allows us to see with our new eyes and hear God speak to us with our new ears. And we're thankful for the crook and we rejoice even before it's over in, in anticipation of how God will bring us out of the ashes of this trial looking more like his son. Isn't that the promise of Romans eight twenty-eight and 29? God works all, including the crooks, <laughs> for our good to conform us to the image of his dear son. Another verse that I would camp on, however, is 1 Corinthians 10.13, where God makes a threefold promise to use regarding crooks. Let me read that for you, translating from the viewpoint of Ecclesiastes 7.4. No crook has overtaken you except what is common to all people. And God is faithful in this way. He will not allow you to be tried by this crook beyond what you are able, but with the crook will provide its sure end so that you will be able to endure it. The way, the, the way, to, the way to endure a crook, in addition to humbling ourselves as Boston maintains, is to stand on God's threefold promise that Paul gives us here. And that will en enable us to endure the crook first. Realize that no crook you endure is unique. Paul says that you cannot ever complain that your particular crook is unique to you. No, millions of other believers have endured it and have conquered. God takes crooks that are common to man. 
What's more, the Bible certainly deals with it, so there's never any excuse not to handle it in a biblical and God-honoring way. Number two, or second, God has taken a common, ordinary crook that millions of other believers have endured and conquered, and he tailors it, especially to fit your situation. And here is where we see how faithful God is. He gives us this tailor-made crook with the promise that we can handle it. But some Christians fail to handle their crooks, you're, you're thinking. That's because they either don't know how to, or they do, but they sinfully refuse to humble themselves and apply it. But you can endure, Paul says so right here, and conquer it if you handle God's tailor-made crook for you in a biblical way. Third and finally, God promises that the crook will come to an end. Paul says, with the crook will provide its sure end. That's my translation. The verse that you're reading may say a way of escape, which has led, I think, many to misunderstand the verse. God is not saying that he's made crooks with an escape hatch, that if you look hard enough, you'll find it so you can get out of it. No, God doesn't bring you a trial in your life with the hope in mind that you will get out of it, but rather that you will endure it, is what Paul says as the last clause says. So how do we bear up under it? Well, by understanding that crooks have shelf lives. It will come to an end. It won't go on forever. God will bring this crook to an end in a time and in a way of his choosing. We don't know when, we don't know how, we just know he will. And there is a light then at the end of the tunnel, this proverbial tunnel, and knowing that helps us to endure these very dark times that God brings our way. Boston makes this comment in his work, quote, be more concerned to get your, sp your spirit low and ply than to get the crook in your lot evened, end quote. <laughs> Paul knew this. God gave him a thorn in his side, right, which Paul wanted gone. He wanted to even God's crook in his life. No one can do that. God said, no, no, it's to keep you humble, Paul. And once Paul understood that, and that God's grace would be accomplished in him, well, that was enough. And he gladly rejoiced in his weakness so that the power of God would be manifest in his life. Now to the second application, which I believe is more to the point of Ecclesiastes. Handling our crook in a godly way as to make the faith attractive for unbelieving observers that we might give them a secret to a life of lasting satisfaction, a life that is knowable and understandable and makes sense. Crooks are beneficial to us, not just for our own sanctification, but as platforms from which to speak to unbelievers about the importance of knowing Christ. When we walk confidently in Christ in the midst of a crook, we can offer the same to them. Because we were once as they are now, right? We can also offer an accurate view of reality, especially about self. The clearest picture of yourself that you can ever get is when you see yourself in comparison to the sovereign and majestic Christ. Isaiah's self-assessment after such a confrontation 
is as good as an example as we could get from Scripture. Woe to me, he said. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Nebuchadnezzar had a similar self-assessment, as did Job, many of the psalmists, and especially the Apostle Paul. Confident reliance on God, a correct view of reality, and also a godly fear. By fear, I mean a reverential respect of God and his ways. Godless people under the sun know nothing of this. But they can come to understand it if you're, if you're handling adversity in a biblical way and they see this. It became very apparent to the Sanhedrin, you may remember, after they had beaten Peter and John for preaching Christ in Jerusalem, that Peter and John had this reverential fear for God rather than for man, which is why they paid no attention to the high priest's threats of further beatings. Go and do what you must, Peter says, for us we must fear God rather than man. And when we get the chance to explain in full to those unbelieving observers who ask us about our reverential walk before God through fiery trials that lead us to rejoice, we can call them to trust Christ. And we should. I'll close with the words of Thomas Boston. He put it this way. He said, believe the gospel. Take God for your God in Christ toward your eternal salvation and then dwell much on the thoughts of God's greatest uh, greatness and holiness and your own sinfulness. So you will be humbled under the mighty hand of God and in due time, He will lift you up. Our Father in God, we are grateful for your goodness to us as you have given us this word today from the writer of Ecclesiastes. Such a timely and powerful message. We pray we would take it to heart, that we would leave this place with it in the fore of our minds, that it would direct our thinking and our behavior, not just not just until we meet again, but on until you come again, that you might use us to your glory to bring lost souls to yourself, again, for your honor and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.